radical self-acceptance involves having to push against narratives. It involves having to kind of go through the fire and come out on the other side. I'm reading Salvation, Black People in Love, again by Bell Hooks, and she talks about the, the importance of this love ethic and how, for instance, Richard Wright, way back in the day, said that Black folks were incapable of authentic love because of white supremacy and because of racism, that so much had been taken from us that we were incapable of loving ourselves or loving others. And in the book, she talks about how James Baldwin, for instance, and Lorraine Hansberry and others challenged that and said, no, in fact, there is so much joy and self-acceptance and love within Black communities. And it is from that resilience and resistance that that's born. Thank you for listening to this episode of Changes Big and Small. Changes Big and Small will help you take action in your life with intention and purpose. In each episode, I invite you to accept unexpected challenges that will help you make progress to build the life that you want. This is your host, Damian. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Shauna Leith. Dr. Leith and I have such a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about Black families, about mental health within the Black community, about mothering and how Dr. Leith is currently thinking about that. A lot of her work is inspired by her own journey and because she's done so much research, she has a lot of resources to share with us of authors and papers that we can check to learn more about the topic. The idea of the strong black woman is a common trope within black American culture. And so we spend some time looking at where that comes from and how it can be harmful to women and girls in the community. Listen to this episode for some ideas of how you can investigate how you are feeling, what areas you are struggling with in terms of self-acceptance, and what practices and opportunities can you take in order for you to develop your own self-acceptance. Dr. Shauna Leith is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. Dr. Leith considers variation in the family and school-based experiences of Black youth and young adults including how they draw on their race and gender identity beliefs as cultural assets to protect against the negative effects of discrimination on academic and physiological outcomes. Her work focuses on these processes among Black girls and women in particular, and recent projects include topics such as emotional wellness among Black mothers and their daughters, articulations of freedom among Black college women, and how school racial context influence Black girls' friendship choices. Welcome to Changes Big and Small, Dr. Leith. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I was doing some research into your research. And as I said in the bio, it is focused on Black women and Black girls. And you look at wellness as well as resilience. Did you feel a pull or push towards these topics in particular? And where did that come from? Yeah, so when I first started in graduate school, I went with the idea that I wanted to look at achievement and motivation among Black students. And so I'm originally from a small Southern area, and I went to public schools that were predominantly Black, and they didn't have as many resources 
And so you had, you know, the similar narrative of, for instance, Black students having lower grades and lower test scores and, you know, not necessarily having college admission rates to the same level of the white students in the school, even though there were so many fewer white students, right? And so initially I was like, oh, I want to go to grad school and study achievement gap and study why Black students aren't as motivated. That perspective radically shifted in grad school to focus less on this idea of Black students' individual behaviors and to understand much more about context and understand how schooling systems influence the motivation of Black students and the opportunities that we receive and, you know, how that can affect other racial and ethnic minoritized groups as well. And so then when I was reading and learning much more about the literature on Black students and how they're doing in schools, I realized there was less on Black girls and less specifically on my experiences as a Black girl in these school systems. And so I started thinking more about, you know, what does identity development look like for Black women and girls? A lot of my work has predominantly focused on the U.S., the United States of America, and Black women and girls in our country, even though more recently that work has looked at more ethnic and national diversity among Black women. So I've had some samples that have included Black women in Ghanaian, Black women in Rwandan women, and that's definitely expanded how I'm thinking about it. And I think the wellness piece came in because even as I was doing some of my initial work on academic and school processes, what kept coming up was psychological well-being and social well-being and how the girls felt connected or felt a sense of belonging or not in school and what lessons they were bringing from home and how important their friends were. And so then I, I started getting much more into thinking about how Black women and girls are making sense of themselves in the world and in their various contexts. So what they're told about being a Black girl and eventually about the Black women they'll be and how that's affected by these stereotypes, in fact, that we have of different groups. Um, And then how some stereotypes trace back and have this historical legacy that's been passed down for decades and generations. And when you mentioned the resilience piece, part of that is thinking about when do we push back against, I think the common kind of phrasing is like, If they put me in a box about who or what I'm going to be as a Black woman or as a Black girl, how do I exist outside of that box? Or how do I decide that doesn't actually fit my identity? And I want to do these other things. And where do I find support for that? And so that's where a lot of my projects are currently. It's talking with Black women and girls. It's talking with them about just these various spaces they're in and, you know, figuring out, like, how do you become who you are? In what ways does that feel healthy to you? In what ways do you feel whole? And then If you're not feeling that way, how do you get there? Like what changes, you know, do you want to make or what changes have you implemented in your life? Even thinking again, developmentally from the time you're a girl to the time that you're an adolescent, young adult, and I'm an adult black woman in later life. As you somewhat mentioned too, I would say a lot of this is probably driven by my own interests and my own life experiences and the stages that I'm at. So more recently, I've been doing projects around parenting and black mothering and what that means. And I have three little ones at home and one on the way. And so that's heavily inspired by my personal experiences as well. Yeah, there are so many places we could go. But one of the podcasts that I listen to is Getting Grown. And Mm -hmm. one of the hosts is Takia. And she talks about being a PhD and being in spaces with colleagues and some of the stereotypes and some of the assumptions that come up in terms of she having to prove her credentials first before people will take a second look in academic spaces. Is that similar to your own experience? 
Yeah. Oh, as you said, so many directions to go with that. So I'm a first generation student. I'm the first in my family to attend a four-year college and to certainly become a doctor. And when I was looking at grad schools, I remember thinking, I need to go somewhere where I have mentors who I don't have to explain the importance of thinking and addressing racism. I, I need them to already be doing work with Black communities and Black families. I don't want to have to justify being in the space. I need to be able to learn from my mentors. And so I was very blessed. I've been formally trained in predominantly white institutions, majority white spaces, but I've had Black mentors every step of the way who have uplifted me and supported me and guided me and pushed me and challenged me. I even mentioned, you know, having to have this significant paradigm shift from thinking about individuals not being motivated to thinking about our social systems, right? So just again, pushing me to to really think about how I'm thinking about Black women and girls and Black people. But yes, so I wrote a blog piece a couple of years ago when I was a doctoral student about being a mom and being low-income, being poor, and being on WIC, which is like a state and federal program to support lower-income mothers and children with like food, and being stereotyped very negatively when I was in the WIC offices, for instance, and needing to get the formula, and they offered some food assistance, and the staff there making comments or assumptions about whether the father was involved and how many children I had at home, and the shift that would occur in some of these situations when I would mention what I did. They'd be like, oh, well, you're highly educated. Like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I'm here because <laughs> graduate student stipends only go so far. And we do not have good social support networks in general in the United States for most communities. And then kind of juxtaposing that with my experience as a doctoral student in my program were assumptions like I was intelligent, especially in my labs and with my mentors right there. They did not question whether I was smart or whether I was capable or competent. And my mothering was seen as a beautiful thing, a strength that I had. And so thinking about what it means to be a Black woman in different spaces and how that's also influenced by social class. But then I know, again, when I was just on campus, for instance, there weren't positive assumptions about why I was there, that I was a graduate student, or even now I'm relatively um, young. I'm 29, going 30 this year, yay. But a lot of folks don't necessarily think that I'm a professor or that I've been in the professoriate for a couple of years or that I'm getting external grants and doing as well as I am in my career. As I moved into this new position, it's really been thinking about how much time am I willing to devote to challenging others' negative views or how much time am I willing to devote to paying so much attention to how I'm dressing or how I'm speaking if I know that my ideas are important. And I know that I'm out here doing this work and I'm out here doing good work. And I think that it mattered to me more, you know, when I was younger, when I felt like I needed to prove something. But I even think about when I'm talking to my kids, I understand the importance and the message behind this idea of you have to be twice as good to get half as far. But I don't want to be the source of that weight on them. I don't want that to be a primary socialization message in our household, because I think it can be harmful. Although I also recognize why Black parents and why other parents say it in terms of wanting to set their kids up for success in education and jobs and in life, because there are still, there's a lot of racism and sexism and classism, but really thinking about how can my parenting be political and how can it be liberatory? And how can I also grace myself with that space to, to be human and to exist as I am and to be confident and showing up in the world in those ways. So it's an ongoing journey. <laughs> I can see that there are many tendrils too in terms of your own journey, but then setting up your kids for success and helping them develop that confidence, resilience, and all the skills that will serve them well all through life. It's so interesting because I think early on, 
And I still use it because it, it's commonly used in psychological literature, for instance, the resilience framework or the importance of, for instance, Black students. We can get into the strong Black women stereotypes specifically for Black women and girls. But more recently, I've been talking about resistance. So the flip side of that coin is that Black folks or Black women shouldn't have to be resilient these spaces should be safer and they should be more inclusive and they should address, for instance, you know, I know with the recent Atlanta shootings in the United States down in Georgia, talking about anti-Asian discrimination and anti-Asian bias and how we need to make um, communities safer. Asian Americans shouldn't have to be resilient against gun violence or Black children shouldn't have to be resilient in schools because they have discriminatory teachers. So, okay, I know the importance of resilience and like being able to push past or have academic motivation or persistence or to be able to get back up when someone pushes you down. But also in thinking about like anti-racist work or liberatory work, the next stage is saying, no, these structures have to change. I should be safe in my neighborhood. I should be safe if a police officer shows up. I should be safe in my workplace and assume that my bosses are looking at the work that I'm producing and not having all these negative assumptions. And so a bit more of my work now is talking about resistance. And, and recognizing the ways that Black communities and Black women have historically and currently always been resisting oppression and resisting being put in these boxes and resisting this notion or trying to, that they are less than anyone else. And so that has been fun to tease out and to be reading works and rereading works, for instance, from scholars I'd read in undergrad and having a different understanding and appreciation for it. Yeah. I have a book club and we've been trying to read the books that are more mind expanding I guess (laughs) and our last session we each chose whatever we wanted to read and came back and talked but we wanted to look at discrimination and inequality within medicine and within the medical field I have one book still checked out superior to read from a UK author but what I did read in the meantime was the book Black Man in a White Coat, Mm -hmm. which is by a Black doctor. And he explains his experience of going to Duke for medical school. You're from the South, so this will make much more sense to you than it does (laughs) to me. (laughs) But he shares a lot of his own experiences of basically he wanted to just, he didn't want any special observation, any special treatment. He didn't want to have to point out anybody's biases or any of that he just wanted to be able to be in the space and be a doctor and do his job but it was very interesting to me because even though he grew up in black communities he seemed to speak the language of oppression as well and so he spoke about how he only learned once he was a doctor that Black people or people didn't just not have insurance because they didn't have a job. They didn't have medical insurance because they had many jobs and none of those jobs provided Mm. medical insurance Mm. and there was no support structure for people. It was so interesting to me. And as you talk about that resistance versus resilience piece, Mm. it kind of reminded me of this whole idea Mm. of, yes, people survive, people get back up, they manage in what sometimes looks like impossible odds, but at what point are you just like, okay, stop knocking me down. (laughs) Even though I know I can get up, stop knocking me down. (laughs) Exactly. It goes back to that work twice as hard to get half as far kind of ethic, but it's flipping it on on its head and saying like, in fact, we are putting out such good work or we are getting back up so many times from things that we shouldn't even have 
to be dealing with. And what toll does that take? Toni Morrison, who's one of my favorite authors, and there have been others too, who talk about racism as a distraction from the important work that we're doing. When we're trying to spend so much time contending with stereotypes or wondering how our words are being construed or how our actions and behaviors are being judged by others, it's a distraction from the important work, for instance, you know, in my work with Black women and girls that I want to do. And I think the, the greatness in the example that you just offered too is we can also have these beliefs in our head about, oh, it's just because they're not willing to work, for instance, with that doctor versus recognizing the inequality in the healthcare system and how you can be working several part-time jobs and how companies, you know, can hire you for fewer hours than when they actually have to provide insurance or that insurance can be incredibly expensive and kind of having more of that deficit-based view of individuals and how hard they're working to survive versus saying like, oh, we could overhaul this system and this could be a big change that could have quite an impact on so many folks in the U.S., for instance, or in other spaces. And I think that that's been something, like even with the strength narrative for Black women, complicating how I think about it. You mentioned in your email, you were like, oh, I used to take like, oh, you're such a strong Black woman as a compliment. And I did too. And it's kind of, even when I talk to women, Black women in college, it's this legacy that they want to step into. They mention, I want to be a strong Black woman like my aunt or like my mom or like my grandma. And I think that's beautiful, right? I love when I ask them about who are their role models. And they mention mom and grandma and auntie and Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey and all these, you know, beautiful Black women but when they talk about strength, I had a follow-up question where I just asked, were there ever times when it seemed to be too much for your mom or whoever they mentioned to be strong? And some of them would say, and this is, I just, I just love, <laughs> I love doing interviews um, in my research, but some of them would say, I never saw my mom cry. That was a common response. Like, no, I, I never saw that, that break in the strength veneer. And some of them would say that was true while they were children. Then when they were older, um, that they'd seen their mom or their grandma have breakdowns, for instance, or they would say like, oh, they're just a couple times a year, she just wouldn't get out of bed for a day or two or a weekend. But then come Monday, she was back up and going. And then there were a number who their moms are nurses or in different fields. And they were like, yeah, we talked about mental health. And we talked about, you know, not having to be strong all the time. There were fewer of those young women saying that, but there were some, I don't want to pretend that all Black women or Black mothers or Black grandmas don't talk about the importance of taking care of yourself, because we certainly do. But I think the resounding message was this, and I'm writing about it now, this notion of having to always overcome adversity and wanting to present that image of strength based on how their daughters were interpreting it, wanting to present that image of strength for their daughters, and then their daughters looking up to it and thinking like, I'm going to be a strong Black woman one day. And for me, that means that I'll take care of my family and or my career and or my community with, as Cheryl Giscome writes, with the grit and the grace of a warrior. And so I think that's beautiful. And it's also this double-edged sword. And I think that folks are doing a much better job of talking more about the double-edged nature of what the woman stereotype means and the, the day-to-day context and our lived experiences and our stress. Yeah. I'm thinking about the phrase, where can I lay down my burden or something mm-hmm. like that. And I think it's definitely also there in the history of that recognition that sometimes it does get to be too much. But at the same time, you still at some point got to lift it back up and soldier on if nobody's there to help you. And I think a lot of people either don't see people around to help or sometimes we don't even give people a chance to help because we don't trust that there is that opportunity. I'm also wondering how does it come back and relate to self-acceptance 
Mm. What's the link that you see there either for yourself or more broadly? Yeah, I read something that resonated quite a bit with me and it said that we need more culturally competent clinicians and social service workers. For one thing, Black women and girls who are experiencing anxiety or depression might feel like failures. That understanding strength in the strong Black woman as a cultural archetype means that for us, if we feel like we're not doing enough in our lives or enough is not perfect enough, we might recognize that as us being failures versus recognizing like, oh, that could be symptomatic of anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges that are happening. Or for instance, recognizing that this kind of supreme independence of like, I've got to take care of it all my own can be a trauma response. And being able to have conversations with Black women or Black girls, for instance, where if you don't feel like there have been enough folks in your life who can offer support or reliable support, and you've kind of grown up with this narrative, like, I'm going to handle everything, that that is, in fact, not healthy. There need to be boundaries where you are taking care of yourself and where others can show up for you and you understand where folks can show up for you. But again, this reframing of being like something that has been praised, this notion of me getting back up again and figuring it out for myself, in fact, being maladaptive coping is something that over the long term could ne- negatively impact my stress and my wellness and have somatic effects. Thinking about my blood pressure and hypertension and how we carry stress in our bodies. And then, you know, we mentioned briefly kind of the medical field, thinking about the underdiagnosis or misdiagnosis of Black women and Black people, for that matter, within healthcare institutions in the U.S., and I would say that this probably exists in other countries as well, even if it has different manifestations, where, you know, doctors are less likely to believe that we are in pain or less likely to think that we need the same types of medication or the same care. There's a scholar, her name is Moya Bailey, and she termed it back in 2013, misogynoir, specifically to talk about anti-Black misogyny or the ways that racism and sexism intersect to harm the health of Black women and girls. And so that term is taking off a bit. It came up in the conversations around Meghan Markle, and it comes up in conversations around Serena Williams when she was delivering her daughter and she told them, I have blood clots, I'm a professional athlete, she has all this money, so social class isn't an issue, and they weren't listening to her and trying to treat her for something else. And she almost died after giving birth. So again, thinking about the intersections of racism and sexism and classism and about Black women and girls and their well-being. I've been curious about the interplay between self-acceptance in isolation, but we don't exist in isolation. We always exist within communities and families and circles. And I've been wondering how easy it is or how complicated is it to develop any self-acceptance within a greater framework that judges and pushes and punishes. I love that. And you you asked that question before and then I forgot about the self-acceptance piece. So thank you for bringing that back up. I don't know if you saw the recent video by Lil Nas X. I might be saying his name wrong, but he's a rapper based in the U.S. And the Satan video. Yeah, the Satan. We can call it the Satan video, right? Virus. He had the shoes with supposedly blood, his whole thing. I haven't fully watched the video, but I've loved his post since then. And I've loved the conversation to spark because part of what he said was, you know, the message that in the religious communities he was in, being Black and being gay was demonized. And he was told he was going to go to hell. And so he chose, you know, to kind of reclaim that narrative. And he made this whole video, this artistic representation, and kind of called out the church and called out the homophobia. And so when you mentioned self-acceptance, I, I think of that to say, I love when I see 
black folks radically accepting themselves. And, and I think that so often when you mention kind of in this broader framework, that radical self-acceptance involves having to push against narratives. It involves having to kind of go through the fire and come out on the other side. I'm reading Salvation, Black People in Love, again by Bell Hooks, and she talks about the, the importance of this love ethic and how, for instance, Richard Wright, way back in the day, said that Black folks were incapable of authentic love because of white supremacy and because of racism, that so much had been taken from us that we were incapable of loving ourselves or loving others. And in the book, she talks about how James Baldwin, for instance, and Lorraine Hansberry and others challenged that and said, no, in fact, there is so much joy and self-acceptance and love within Black communities. And it is from that resilience and resistance that that's born. There is this book by Sonia Renee Taylor that you might be interested in. And it talks about radical self-love. She's a Black, queer, fat, self-identifying fat Black woman. And she talks about her journey and how it took rejecting these narratives about what her body should look like or how she should show up in the world to get towards this radical self-love, which involved being open with others. And I think she's like nearly naked on the cover. She's like laying on a bed of flowers. And it even kind of reminds me like for Black women and girls, the importance of seeing us rest and the importance of seeing us happy. I saw these photos the other day, they were like Black women doing brunch on blankets with like tea and there were just these elaborate food, you know, all these things. It was just frivolous and they were just doing brunch. And I just appreciate those images and those reminders so much. And even to be able to show them to my kids that self-acceptance hopefully will also involve this, this joy in who we are and finding the things that make us happy and also being quicker to recognize when a space is unhealthy and leaving it if we can. And the space could be a relationship, a space could be in our own minds about how we think about ourselves and how we talk to ourselves. It could be family members or folks we consider friends. It could be work. It could be media. Social media is huge. Thinking or talking with Black girls, scholars have called it kind of having this critical gaze of saying like, oh, this is what media is telling me I am or who I should be or how Black women and girls are. But I know that's not true. Or I know there's more to that story. Or I know it's fine for Meg Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj and whoever to be out there shaking their bodies and dancing the way they want to and wearing what they want to. And I'm gonna take what feels good for me and my own journey to self-acceptance and leave what doesn't. I'm constantly kind of piecing that together for myself and piecing it together hopefully for my kids and how I talk with them and love on them um, and respond to them, even if it's where things as small as what they're wearing or their hair or what they wanna do and just working towards it. So even like with my daughter, when I was growing up and I'm biracial, my mom is white, my dad's black and I wasn't allowed to go out with my hair looking just any type of way. My, my mom would tell me like, it looked like Don King. It's braided up now, but you know, it was really out there. So being self-conscious, right? Like when I was going out and, and my hair's not brushed back or it's not with a headband or something. And my daughter has beautiful curly hair. She doesn't like getting her hair all the time, but she's seven and unbothered. And so if she wants to go outside and play with her friends and I just took her braids down and I don't need to do her hair today, not saying like, oh, but look what your hair looks like. Like, oh, you look a mess. Just being like, okay, have fun. Look out for cars. Love you. And letting her go. I don't see that voice in her head that makes her second guess herself. So small reminders, even um, like that. I love that. I have much younger sisters and one of them is 17. And I was joking with her and telling her that a few years back when I went to visit in Canada, we were going to town and she had her hair back in cornrows. And one of them was like, 
shooting straight back. And I was like, do you want me to tuck it in for you? And she's like, no, I don't care. And I was like, all right. And I was like, I love to see it. I love to see that confidence. Pretty is not the price we pay to go out in the world. So, so yes, just that not having, again, that second guess where it's like, and it's fine if you do, there is nothing wrong wanting to have be styled from the head to the toe. That is also wonderful, but we're more accepting of folks depending on how they look. I remember the first time I cut all my hair off, I was in university and uh, I was just like, why am I spending so much time doing my hair? I could just cut it all off and life would be so great. And I loved it, but everybody <laughs> else did not love it. And they were just like, your hair is your beauty, with a Caribbean background, that was all the messaging. And even now, I, I still love it, but every once in a while, I'm like, oh, maybe I should grow my hair. I still have those urges, and I know they're not coming from my true self. I know they're coming yeah. from representations of what other people say is, it means to be and a woman. See, exactly. <laughs> and there's so much control in that. And we think about like how we socialize gender and how we socialize women or female-bodied people. So much of it is around what others think of you or what others value in women. There was one Black woman I was talking to and she mentioned that when she was like 10, I think the other important thing is how long these comments can stay with us. So she's like 10, I'm talking to her when she's like 22. And she says that she fell from her bike, she's got bike riding, skinned her knee. And her dad told her that she needed to stop bike riding because her future husband won't want a woman with skinned knees. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right? and I mean, again, this is a dad who she loves. You no, know, she's like, he's a good dad. But that comment stayed with her into her 20s. And she's like, he was more worried about how my legs look for this future male partner than he was about the blood running down my leg. And I think, so again, when I'm talking to him, I'm just like, perfect example of how we often socialize women and girls to think about their male partners in the future or to think about marriage or their kids. And a lot of the Black women in my sample, the Black college, when they were kind of pushing back against some of that, where they were like, I'm more than the roles that I'm taking on for other people. And so when you mentioned it's more the voices in your head from others than your own voice about like cutting your hair, whether you want to grow it out, it's great being able to name that. I had a friend who mentioned that the first thought that comes to our mind sometimes is how we've been socialized, what society has told us. And hopefully we have the second thought where we say, okay, now what do I think about that? Or, oh, I know that's wrong. And then we adjust our behaviors accordingly. Maybe we can't help that first thought that pops up, but we've got these messages over and over. But that second thought that can affect how we operate in the world and how we show up for people and love on people, that's really critical. And I appreciated that because there are <laughs> plenty of times when I hear my mama or my grandma or whoever, some random person in the store making comments. I remember we were riding in the car. I was like 12 and I was riding with my mom. She's white. And they, it was black folks too. They yelled at the back of their truck, calling us the N-word and some other stuff, like in lover and all this. And, <laughs> and it was jarring for a number of reasons. But then having to rethink the self-consciousness around being out with my mom or something being wrong with interracial relationships. Mm. When I've been talking to black women more recently, I asked them the question, when do you feel free? We're thinking more about self-acceptance. And it's been riveting to me how often some of them have been like, free. I've never thought of that before. What does that mean? The direction some of my work is heading where it's like radical self-acceptance for Black women and girls, folks in general, but that's what my work focuses on is thinking about freedom and thinking about what do I want? What feels good to me? Thinking about pleasure and desires 
What we want to do, that's a privilege that not many or not all Black women and girls have. When you mentioned traveling, I was like, I love it. You're out there traveling the world. And I love to see it. I love to see more Black women and girls saying, this feels good to me. I like this. I enjoy this. I am doing this um, and taking that for themselves. One of the previous guests on the podcast is Sebene Selassie, and she's a meditation Mm -hmm. teacher. She has a book called You Are Enough. When I talked to her, she talked about how she's in lots of different meditation communities, but she's been involved in retreats with people of color only. And until she went to her first one, she didn't realize how on edge she was. She has all of these spaces, all of those people that she loves that are not people of color, but still just being in that space that time, she realized that there was a way to relax with everybody choosing to be there that she had never experienced before. And I just thought that was so incredible because I then thought, back to what you ask, where do you feel free? I think that's such a great question that can really help us connect to being able to access that opportunity. I read something, I can't remember what it was, but it was from a young woman. And she said that it was such a mind shift for her to realize that she could leave situations. And I think she said her parents told her, if you're ever uncomfortable, call us and you can leave. I think actually it was her mom specifically. I I think it was her mom that told her that there was a time when she was a child, she was at a slumber party. She was no longer comfortable. She called her mom and she was worried that she was inconveniencing her mom or would make her friends feel sad. But her mom immediately came and picked her up and she left. And she said it was so important for her to learn from a young age and to see it modeled that she would still be loved. And she had the ability and the right to leave spaces that weren't serving her and did not feel good to her. Maybe she went to some of her, she was excited that something happened. And she said, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't feel okay. When I think about that for my sons and my daughter, I think that this is something that we can give to children. And I think that that wasn't necessarily something that I was explicitly taught or modeled as a child. And so then as an adult, having to learn like, oh, I don't want to be in this space anymore. Actually, this doesn't feel good. Or when I'm in conversation with this person or this space, I'm really tense and I'm stiff and I'm, I'm watching everything that I'm saying and being like, oh, was there a way for me to not be in this space anymore? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's not an option, mm-hmm. but even being able to recognize it and when it is an option to say like, okay, I'm going to honor myself and my experience and know that this is important for my journey to be in spaces where I'm not tense and like, and that I don't have to be there. Um, I think again, socialized as a Black girl and as a Black woman, there's a lot of expectations that we just soldier through. Whether we're uncomfortable or not, or whether folks are being harmful or not, we stay. And so I I love the idea of giving my children the freedom to say, I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) Like, I mean, as their mama, help me get out of this. And then just (laughs) model for that to where they can have that kind of that authentic voice in their head as they get older to learn to do that for themselves. And I think that's such a big thing that comes up in families too, because for example, in some Caribbean cultures that can be seen as being disrespectful. And so it's, uh, I think there's a lot of space for growth (laughs) within the community. (laughs) One of our papers in the lab that's under review now, we asked the question of black moms. And again, they were ethnically and more socioeconomically diverse, but they were all based in the U.S. What does it mean to raise free black children? And then we, we analyzed their responses And this notion of disrespect and socio-emotional development came up quite a bit. And a lot of it was the mothers talking about having to unpack their own biases and their expectations that they had for their children. 
and recognize what it meant to be raising little people and not raising little versions of themselves and checking their own emotional responses. So if my child said no to me or they don't want to do something and I'm just like, I'm immediately angry, man, where, like, where did that anger come? Is it from a place of love? Is this something that actually, maybe they don't want to do that right now and that's okay. And we can modify our schedule or I can go do it if I ask them to give me the remote because when I don't want to do something, I tell them. So again, kind of this mutual respect and what that means as you're raising kids. And yes, I'm talking to the black woman, the college sample that I have disrespect comes up a lot and what it means for them to say no and what's okay in their family. And I think the other important part of that, when you were mentioning kind of the self-acceptance on our own versus, but we're in community, like, yes, we can be our, on our own, but we're in relation to others, is them not wanting to sever ties with their families and them loving their parents and wanting to be respectful of their elders and all these things. And so negotiating these tensions when it's like, ah, I don't want to do this or, in fact, I don't plan to get married. Marriage comes up a lot because they're like 21, 22. They're about to finish their degrees. Child rearing comes up a lot. And being like, what does this mean for me? Can I say no? Can I do this other path? Part of the importance that came up, which I really appreciated, was the importance of other Black women, friends in their lives who like were giving them permission. Like maybe at that point in their life, they didn't feel secure enough to give themselves permission mm-hmm. to say, oh, mom, dad, I'm not going to major in engineering. I'm actually going to go and be like a sociologist or a creative writing major. But their other Black women friends in particular being like, no, like, that's your pathway. You're so talented. You're creative. You're working hard. You'll figure it out. Um, and again, there was uniqueness in those friendships of other Black women that they weren't getting even from like Black male friends a lot of times or from women, for instance, all these women attended white, predominantly white institutions. And so they said, you know, when I'm with white women, I'm reminded that I'm black. When I'm with black men, I'm reminded that I'm a woman. But black female friends, they understood their experiences in many ways that that were more resonant and kind of set with their soul and were very affirmative and helpful. So, so yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a lot of negotiation. As we yeah. think about mental health and wellness, resilience, resistance, all of those things, do you have an invitation for listeners of something that they could do, some practice, some experience that they could do to help with this area. If you have access to resources, one is being willing to to look into a mental health counselor or to look into if there are free options in your community. I'm in a group counseling session for Black women that's completely free. And I love that space. It used to be weekly, but with COVID now it's bi-weekly. So every two weeks, I'm on Zoom and we're just chatting it up. And I really love that. There's also some groups in the area that are focused around exercise, which for me, my exercise and my physical health is very much so tied to my mental health and my emotional well-being. And so just being able to get out there with other women of color and walk down some blocks, you know, once a month. I exercise a little bit more than that, but that is really fun. And I look forward to it. So if you're interested and you feel a stigma around actually looking for resources or spaces, try to get past that and actually see if there's anything offered. Sometimes there's not, and that's really challenging and an issue that I think is true for Black communities and lower income communities and immigrant communities as well. I would also offer though, like beyond those actual resources, thinking about self-acceptance, to think about where you're at in your journey yourself. Those can be really hard conversations to have with yourself. Like, where do I not actually accept who I am? What do I feel uncomfortable about even bringing up or thinking about what makes me feel tense or tight in my chest and sit with that. 
sit maybe with that tenseness, that tightness and think about how can you loosen it? Is there somebody I need to talk to? Not in terms of professionally, but maybe I need to have this really hard conversation with my mom about this thing that happened when I was a child and can that happen? And I think that, again, this has come up quite a bit for me in my parenting journey where I have to think about, ooh, what triggers come up for me? What happens when I see it in my child or when something out there that maybe I hadn't acknowledged before? A lot of my journey to self-acceptance and thinking about my well-being has been recognizing where I'm at, planning out where do I want to go? What does that look like for me? Even as simple as, again, um, wearing something maybe I felt uncomfortable with before and realizing like I do like it, so I do want to start wearing it out and just loving that. Or something as big as like, maybe this job isn't a good fit for me. And so what plans can I put in place to actually leave this job in two, three, five years? It could be big, but feeling as much ownership and control over that as I can. I mentioned this already a little bit, but like feeling your feelings. I think sometimes strength and this notion of invulnerability, particularly for Black girls and women, it can seem useful in the moment, but it can mask being able to acknowledge that someone hurt you or that you are angry or that you are upset or that you are embarrassed and being able to sit with those mixed emotions and be like, okay, now what? Where am I going with this? I wrote a blog piece about my daughter where sometimes when anger comes out, the more important thing I want her to recognize is that I hurt her in some way or that she is hurting. And so I think for Black women in particular, that can be important because maybe we're not given a lot of space for our pain. And so that's a critical starting point to be able to acknowledge like I'm hurting for this, this, or this reason. So I think that is what I would offer. And then also feeling hopeful. I love this question I got. They asked for a research interview, like, what am I feeling hopeful about? And I love that. And so I'll even kind of stay here. I, I love reading fictional works and nonfiction works by Black women and by Black authors. I love seeing entertainment stuff, like with Lil Nas X, these artistic representations mm -hmm. that kind of push us or remind us of uh, maybe some things that came out in the 60s and 70s during our parents' time. I love seeing Black children out there just feeling free and just being and laughing and enjoying themselves. And so I think those things make me hopeful and I hold on to them deeply in my spirit as I think about my own well-being. Wonderful. Can I ask you a quick five? If you have a meeting coming up within 12 hours, what are you doing to prepare? So it depends on the nature of the meeting. If I'm meeting with students and I'm kind of like the leader in that space, a lot of times I think about let's make sure I'm checking in with folks personally as well as professionally so that they know I care about how they are doing as well as like how our projects are moving forward. And I think that's a really important part of just mentorship. So the preparation when I'm kind of in the lead role is thinking about how do I show care for the folks who I'm meeting with and also be productive in that space. And that changes sometimes when the pandemic was first hitting. And again, when like George Floyd was happening, that care kind of took precedence over maybe some of the assignments and things that I had or the agenda items I'd set for those meetings because folks were hurting and we need to you know, acknowledge and recognize and I want to be a person who acknowledges and recognizes when things are happening that can be harmful. When I'm preparing for a meeting like with my boss, then in much the same way, I kind of think I usually have agenda items and I'm thinking about, okay, what do I hope to get accomplished? What questions do I have? Are there some important like milestones that I want to highlight in that meeting? If it's a conference or something with professionals, it depends on the conference. Again, I guess so. Apparently I'm a very context specific person. <laughs> I have some conferences. <laughs> I'm always like, it depends, but... I love, for instance, I went to one that was for um, Black folks in higher education. And just being in that space, there was actually the research that I was presenting on, but then there were the social aspects. And so 
my preparation for a meeting like that is like, ooh, what fun am I going to have? And what friends am I going to connect with? And what colleagues have I been wanting to meet? And so I guess maybe the overlapping thread in all of these is me thinking about what personally can I gain from whatever meeting is about to happen, even if that personal gain is just getting to check in with the colleague that I care about and hearing something good that happened in their day. And then professionally, like, what does this look like? What do I want to share? What assistance or support do I need? Have I identified? And then what are next steps? Like always thinking forward. So after this meeting, what then am I doing? What are others, you know, doing for or with me and planning for that and making it very concrete. Um, so everyone is clear on our goals and mission. So, yes. Do you have a phrase, one sentence pep talk that you give yourself for motivation? I honestly don't think so. I do not. Mm, okay, actually, that's not true. So I think one of the things I struggle with, with the self-acceptance piece or with kind of going to the next level is this notion of disappointing people or being told no or not going the way I planned. And so I guess maybe my mantra sometimes when I'm feeling that discomfort is literally like the worst they can say is no. So I do actually tell myself the worst they can say is no if I'm worried about what someone might say, so then I'll be like, okay, so if they say no, then what does that mean? So I guess that it's <laughs> not necessarily empowering, but it reminds me, like, don't limit myself. Let them tell you no before you have already told yourself no. Okay, so where do you live now? And if you have guests, what's the first thing you show them or the first place you take them to? I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I live in a suburb. If I have guests that come into town, oof, and I have kids. I have three kids at home, like I I probably would take them, and we've only lived here since the pandemic happened. We have really good hiking trails, and there's mountains and things. We live near Shenandoah, which is one of the big natural parks, like national parks in the U.S. I've been wanting to go to Shenandoah Valley and walk some of those trails and see the mountains. So in theory, that's where I would go. What's the thing that's guaranteed to increase your energy and recharge you? Besides coffee, no. Sleep. Sun. Sometimes I will just go out. I will sit. My husband makes fun of me. He's like, are you sunbathing? <laughs> Recharging in the sun. Yes, I am. I'm sitting out here because I'm overwhelmed or I'm tired or whatever. And I'm just going to soak it up. You know, my window's even open now so I can get a little bit of this natural vitamin D coming in. You only ask for one thing, but reading also recharges me. So when I have just time to sit and read something that I've been excited about, ah, I love it. I come downstairs so, so, so excited and so hyped up reading other folks' words and thoughts. Yeah. Actually, that connects right to my next question, because you've just been given the gift of time. Somebody's taking care of your kids <laughs> and you have a free day. What are you doing with it? First, I'm probably like spending what I would call wasting an hour trying to figure out what to do with this free time because it happens so rarely. Then I'm planning out at least two places that I want to eat that day. Even if it's just boba tea, like getting something to go because I love food so that ah, and I just have to buy myself food, not the whole house. What? I'm probably reading something. Again, because I read for work. And so reading for pleasure is something that I have to be intentional about. And I usually only get to read at bedtime. And if the weather is good, I'm going to be outdoors. Like I'm going to go for a walk, I'm going to go run something. I'm going to reconnect with friends. And so that doesn't sound very exciting. But those are hey, this is not so different than my list. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> Thank you. You've been so generous you. with your time, Dr. Leith. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for chatting with me. Thanks for inviting me. I hope you have a great, today is Thursday. Yesterday, I wished somebody a happy Thursday, so I was like a day ahead. But <laughs> I hope you have a great rest of your week. You Thank too. You. 
be sure to check out the show notes for the list of all of the different resources that Dr. Leith mentioned in today's episode. If you know somebody else who will benefit from listening to this episode, please share it with them. I would appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast to help other people find it. Take some time and investigate where you are in your own self-acceptance journey. Remember, change begins with one small step. Have a great week.